Hey guys, Tim and Chris back with you for episode 31. Wow, we're moving right along here. So we decided to hit record rather abruptly this week because we were actually just starting to debate a topic uh, that I saw come around or come across the screen on CNBC. Basically, 66% of Silicon Valley employees are considering relocating uh, post-COVID. And this is largely driven because obviously people are seeing how easily we can work remote and things like that. And this is according to some survey? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it just kind of, it kind of scooted across the screen. I didn't get a chance to see the, um, the, the research organization behind it. And I, I've got, got the TV muted, so I didn't get much context as to what was going on. But I'm curious about this because on one end of this, we have offices going away. Offices aren't going to completely go away, but to a significant degree, especially when you look at the scale of unemployment in the, in the country and you realize that you know, you've got a lot of jobs that aren't coming back. And then for the companies that do have those jobs back, they're realizing that we don't need that office space. So I, I think there's certainly a bottom to fall out of the real estate game here. But these companies are going to be able to save on this office space. Um, which is great if, if their employees are going remote. But when you look at folks leaving Silicon Valley, you got to imagine, too, that that's increased profitability because living in Silicon Valley commands very, very high wages. You know, and the flip side is you've got uh, Jason Fried with, um, I, I guess, Basecamp. They used to be called 37 Signals, and he famously wrote uh, with his business partner that book, um, uh, Rework. Rework. And then I think he wrote mm -hmm. another one called Remote, but it was all about uh, remote working. I, th I don't think they've had an office for 10 or 12 years now. But what they do is no matter where you are, uh, they pay everybody the fair wage for that job in San Francisco. So you could be living in Budapest, you could be living in Argentina, you could be living in Chicago, you could be living in Madison, Wisconsin, where wherever it is. And they effectively pay you what is the, the San Francisco fair wage. And so I, I understand the principle behind that in terms of we pay you what you're worth, not where you live, which is great. The flip side, though, is I think for Silicon Valley, we've, we've ultimately had to inflate wages dramatically. I mean, there, there are engineers that come into a company that make 500 grand to a million bucks a year strictly because it's Silicon Valley. And now, there is a lot of competition for their talent, but also, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. 5000 bucks a month to split an apartment, it's, it's obscene. And so I imagine that some of these profits are going to be recouped by these companies as they're going to start to see not only smaller labor forces, but also a smaller cost per capita. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting concept. You know, if, if, if people and businesses start moving out of these expensive areas, uh, specifically Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley, but I'm, I'm, I'm broadening it even beyond. I think that affects the real estate market nationally because a lot of our real estate in Phoenix, where we live, uh, at least you know the apartments that we sell. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's a huge percentage of our buyers. Uh, after we're done renovating them, are are buyers who are coming out of California. They've done a, a ten thirty one exchange. They've got you know appreciated real estate because of that super high expense uh, of rents and things of that sort. And they're, they're trading in. So, I mean, if this trend of remote work of, uh, you know, scattering your, your people resources uh, across uh, other, other parts of the country, 
uh, actually takes effect. I mean, that could that could affect the real estate market pretty substantially, actually. Frankly, I hope it does. Um, you know, I, I do think there's a little bit of a stigma around Silicon Valley that you know o- only the, the the talented people work there, whatever you want to say. But there are so many talented people in all corners of this country, and my hope is that if we're able to to become more comfortable with remote work, we can. I think, as a nation, um, improve the average quality of output for our businesses because we are no longer using location as a crutch for our So, so think about this. Um, and I, I'm I'm ripping this idea completely off uh, from from Jason. So, I apologize or hat tip whatever I need to say here. You know, he talks about the fact that instead of having to recruit from a small pool of people. So say you're in Chicago or whatever, and, and you're recruiting from a small pool of engineers if you're hiring a software engineer in Chicago. If I'm not limited by an office, and I can recruit the best software engineer from anywhere in the world, and they can stay at home, they can be with their family and, and all of that, I imagine that businesses collectively have to be able to get better by losing that constraint of the office. Right. I mean, just, I mean, this is anecdotal, but even our own company, like our corporate team, we've been working from home for what, two months now, month and a half. Yeah. Whatever it is. I mean, I feel like we're working better than before this whole thing started. Now we implemented, you know, a few, a few things that, that helped me, um, get comfortable with that. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's affecting us at all not being in the office. I'd like it if you implemented better internet. Your internet is cup and My string. Internet is really bad. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. And I, I upgraded it recently to uh, the Gigablast uh, in internet, which I, I think is really just a marketing ploy for me to pay extra money. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's been, it's been crazy. They just did this a couple of days ago, and. I've actually had to use my phone to hotspot to my laptop for a couple of conference calls the first day or so because because it like went down. This is the weirdest thing. It seems to be working okay right now, but I was on a Zoom call see two nights ago after upgrading it, and it's like glitchy and all this stuff. And then uh, I think I got suckered in this whole gigablast thing. <laughs> Yeah, but that said, um, for, first of all, think how good we have. It. This is what we have to complain about right now. Let's, um, you know, yeah. my, my internet didn't what work, did so I, I had to problem? use my cell phone. Okay, yeah, good problems to have. <laughs> in the grand but to your yeah, point, you know, that's right. our company was certainly more open to remote work, I think, than than, than most. Anyway, yeah, we had an office, but you know, if if you were working remote, I, you know, nobody batted an eyelash we're totally open to it but for us it just gave us uh, a little bit of a kick in the pants to formalize that a little bit more instead of just accepting it we became proactive about the way we did it we haven't missed a beat and in fact it's probably made us better to be honest our community our communication has improved dramatically and i think we're sharper too you know you're talking to people on the team that no longer are spending an hour in the car each way this has to be a very good thing. You were, do you, do you realize you're spending an hour in the car each way to come into the office every day? 
you are getting more than a full work week, or excuse me, a full work day of your life back every week. Right. Right. And I mean, as an employer, like if we don't, if we don't pick up that time that they would have been, which we may, I mean, I, I suspect we may pick up some of that time where they were commuting before just because, you know, everything anymore is so on. Uh, but even if we didn't, they're less, I think our folks are less worn out from, from having to commute. It's exhausting. Commuting is exhausting. And we live in Phoenix and commutes aren't even that bad. No, I'm going to, I'm going to do some math for you here. I'm going to do this live math. So I went, I went to Arizona state. So, you know, as did you, we're going to have to check each other's math here. So, (laughs) So if you're getting 10 hours a week, so, so, you know, two hours an hour in the car each way, which is not, that's actually probably a normal commute. I think the average commute nationally is like 30 to 40 minutes, but let, let's call it an hour just because um, I'm just... assuming we're talking about Silicon Valley. That is absolutely accurate. That's, that's definitely Chicago was absurd. There were people that I would, I'd meet in Chicago and they had two hour commutes each way. And they talked about it like they were going to get friggin' groceries. Like this is unbelievable. That's crazy. So, so let's say, let's say you're saving two hours a day in the car. That's 10 hours a week. Okay. 52 weeks in a year. Last I checked, it's 520 hours a year of drive time savings. So, and th- by the way, this is before we factor in depreciation on your car. Maybe you don't even need a car, gas, insurance, all, all, all of that stuff. 520 hours a year of drive time, okay? A year. We're going to say divided by eight hours in a workday, 65. We're going to divide that by five workdays a week. By simply working remote, you are effectively giving people 13 weeks of vacation a year. That's crazy. <laughs> that is just absurd. That is 65 work days that people are getting back in their life. Well, and you know, like with the way things are going, we're, we're I mean, we're always on, you know? Yeah. When I'm not, when I'm not like sitting in front of my computer working, I'm listening to, uh, you know, some markets interview or something i'm like educating myself constantly yeah and so you know people are going to take that time to probably be more on just because the nature of you know the distractions that all the constant communication and things of that sort that 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 uh go on in business that could that might that might drive productivity i think it will that might drive productivity nationally. I mean, it could be interesting. This hopefully, and I mean, we, we've completely gutted ourselves economically, but hopefully, keying on topic of last week is that we can learn from this and improve it, and and not just focus on getting back to normal. We we don't need to get back to normal. And I'm not talking about you know social distancing and can we be in a bar and all that stuff, but just the way we work. Maybe we don't want to go back to normal. Maybe normal is actually the enemy in this case. I think that's certainly true. I've, I've, I've got to imagine. Speaking of normal, we talk, we were talking on the show a lot about um, markets and, and the broader economy, but something you and I talk about a lot off air is 
more of our own personal economies. And something that we have found ourselves completely flabbergasted with lately is why you know you and I consider ourselves to be in the capital allocation business, you know, leading companies, which is true, but why as Americans we suck and I mean we suck with a capital S at our own personal <laughs> capital allocation. <laughs> we really do. And, and I, I was talking about this actually last night with my wife in the sense that typically speaking, as you get promoted and you start making more money, your expenses rise at a faster pace than your income rises. Mm-hmm. It makes no yeah, sense. It's crazy. It makes absolutely no sense. But originally, you were the person that brought this idea of sucking a capital allocation up to me. But I think we see these examples all day, every day. Yeah, for sure. You know, i i think I think there's a. We're also um, so afraid to lose money investing that we don't invest it, but yet we'll buy a new car that's going to depreciate by 30% the first year. But yet we're afraid to actually take that same amount of money and invest it. It's so bizarre. It's really bizarre. You know, and I think, I think what brought this concept up was, was, uh, uh, you know, uh, along with the rest of America, uh, I've heard one of the things that's actually thriving right now is RV sales. We've talked a little bit about this. I bought one myself. Uh, but along with the rest of America, given that there's almost nothing else to do uh, going into summer vacations, America is camping. And so you and I have been talking about camping. And we were talking about, uh, you know, buying an old uh, uh, Forerunner, I think is what it was. Uh, buying an old Toyota Forerunner. And it just occurred to me, like, why do we not, why do we buy new cars? Uh, because we don't want, we don't want the expense of having to maintain an old one. When the fact that the, the new cars, first of all, most people borrow money for their cars. So yep. you got to pay an interest on top of it. And even if you get 0% interest, there's an imputed interest rate in it. And then second, like your car depreciates super fast. And so I don't know that there's actually a, a car in the world where you don't lose money on it. It just depends on, do you want to lose money on interest and depreciation? Or do you want to lose money on maintenance? And a lot of people would be a heck of a lot better off losing money, a little bit of money on maintenance and buying an old forerunner that's going to run forever than they would be to, you know, go buy a brand new whatever when they got to borrow money to do it. It's, it's, it's crazy. And so I think about these things uh, like almost like domestic investments where, um, you know, we would save money. And this is Dave Ramsey, you know, if you live like no one else, you'll live like no one else, yep. you know? And, uh, you know, he's, he's all for going out and buying the old beater and putting a thousand dollars aside for your emergency fund. We need to take a page out of that book. Well, the maintenance isn't this. guaranteed. Either. The depreciation, you're not getting around. <laughs> that's that's going to oh, happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. I, I remember when I was a real young guy and I, uh, I just started 
I think it was my first business. One of them. One of them. I don't know. And I was around um, s- somebody. Um, I'd, I'd met a guy, and um, we were fairly close. Our families were fairly close. And I'm not sure if he was a billionaire, but he was he was sniffing it one way or the other. And we we went to get in his car to go somewhere, and we this was probably like I'm gonna make up the year. Let me say like 2008, 2009. And we got in a 19, probably 92 or 93. Mercedes. Um, and now granted, and you know, as Rodney Dangerfield would have said, Hey, I bet you were something back in the day. You know, I'm sure that car was something back in the day, but at this point that car was 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. And, uh, you know, you know, you're a young kid, you know, not too far out of college and you're thinking, man, you know, someday I'd like to, I like to have a lot of money and drive a nice car. And, you know, we live in Scottsdale here where every 25 year old seems to have a Lamborghini. Now I, I can't understand what's going on, but I'm also not totally comfortable living in a world where influencer is a profession, just like professional video game player is now an actual profession. Nonetheless, um, I said to the guy, hey, what's the, what's, you know, what, what's the story in this car? This is, you know, it's, it's really nice because, well, I don't, you know, just because just I've got a ton of money doesn't mean I need to spend it. Cars are terrible investments. <laughs> he goes, I spent $5,000 for my cars on eBay. If it sucks, it sucks, but you know, generally I got to do a little little mechanical repair to it, and I I drive them around for two three years, and and I'm better off financially because of it. And you know, I mean, he's still driving, you know, an S five fifty or S whatever Mercedes, so it's it's a nice car, but it's it's got years on it. So you know, here we are, years later. I took a kind of took a page out of his book, and I acquired a two thousand and six BMW seven fifty. And I think I got the car in, I guess, a year before you and I started working together. So was that 2017? Maybe I got the car. And so at the time, the car was 11 years old. The blue book value on the car was $5,000. And that is what I paid. Paid $5,000 cash. And since then, I have, I did put new tires on it, which were not cheap. I think I spent 1000 bucks to put new tires on it. and. I have changed the oil. I have had no mechanical issues, but even if I did, look at how far ahead I am. I spent spent five thousand bucks. The car will probably last me at least another two years. So we're talking. I think when all said and done, I'm probably going to have five years out of that car. So paid five thousand bucks for that. Sixty months. I'm paying eighty three dollars a month. We'll say. For that car, that car new, you're probably talking twelve hundred dollars a month. To, oh, easily to purchase it. I, th- I think it was about a hundred twenty thousand dollar car, new. It easily, and it's yeah, it's the same. You've been in the car. It's it's an old car, but it's yeah, it it doesn't feel it's like nice you're car. driving around. You know, some beat up car with the floorboard hanging off. It's 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 totally fine. And I've had to do very little to it maintenance. But even if I did. Think of how much maintenance I would have to do on that before I surpassed that new car ticket every month. Yeah. I mean, you would you would lose. So, so your annual, even if you just drove that thing for three years now, let's say it dies tomorrow. And, 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 then, and then you just, you flush the thing down the toilet or burn it. Because in all likelihood, you're going to be able to sell it. The scrap is probably worth three on that. Yeah, exactly. But but even if you didn't do that, 
your depreciation on that car is like $1,500 a year, maybe $2,000 a year if you dumped it. You would lose that in a month if you bought a brand new car. Yeah. And people don't know this, but Chris could afford that brand new car. <laughs> but but why? But it's fun. What's fun? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but what's funny is like, you know, you, you get these, uh, uh, one of my good friends likes to call them $30,000 millionaires. You know, they're making, making 30 grand. They look like a million bucks. Uh, uh, but it's just leveraged to the hilt and, you know, don't have the capacity. I mean, this is like built into our culture for some reason. And I think this is this is this coincides with some of the conversations we've had in the past, where you know cash is trash for for so long, and you know credit is available uh, so prevalent that we don't value savings uh, at all. I think as a culture, and as a result of that, we are so under allocated to cash and over allocated to credit and under allocated to investments, I think as a country, uh, that it's, it's going to affect us at some point. Um, it, you know, I'm trying to put my finger on what it is because there's certainly the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Part of it is, I think we just get, get swept up in, in the day to day. And we just, we don't take a step back and look at, at what these things are doing to us systemically. You know, it's, you, you look at Elon Musk, who's selling off all his possessions. I don't know, maybe he's selling it off because he's got a tax bill to pay, but you know, he, you know, he kind of famously said that at some point the things you own start to own you. And, mm-hmm. you know, well, maybe we don't feel that way if, you know, we're, you know, buying a car or whatever else, it's certainly different when you have six houses or whatever, like he did these things they're just at they're not assets i almost said assets but they're they're entities that we pay into that just keep wanting more and more and more of us and you know going back to the original points like okay well now i got the promotion well now i'm running with with this group of people and now i got to do this just to keep up and it's like the things that we think are the necessities like we we don't even realize that we're living in a way that is really living aspirationally and doing a lot of wants we think that we're just doing the normal things we're supposed to do. And it's, I mean, D- Dave Ramsey would be shuddering. I actually listen to Dave Ramsey from time to time. But we, we got to, we've got to, as a country, get a lot smarter about how we make our cash and our hard-earned dollars work for us and, and figure out what they're putting into us. You know, a, a car, you can go buy a shiny car. It's not going to do a lot for you and a lot for your family the way investing that money wisely or even saving it will. And we've got to be able to sacrifice that short-term hit of dopamine or serotonin, whatever it is that, that, that makes us happy in our brain for that longer-term stability and security. Only then when we start craving that, and hopefully with COVID, we do start craving that. Hopefully people have been shaken enough that they're going to be a little bit more hesitant on, on debt, a little bit more hesitant on possessions, and maybe a little bit more focused on quality and security. But we, we have to start choosing that over the former. Yeah. 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 It's um for this for the sake, I think, of of our country. 
you know, not, not just ourselves, but like, yeah. Anyway, there's, so I think culture is starting to change and you can see it. You can see it on the fringes, right? You've got, you've got all these concepts, uh, of, of like the fire movement. Um, for those of you that don't know, that's financial independence, retire early, right? Yep. And their whole thing about extreme frugality. Um, you've got the concepts of the tiny home movement uh, and, and really their rejection of, uh, you know, the, the McMansions uh, uh, of yesteryear. Um, you've got, so, so, so cultures, cult, cultures starting to change in that regard. And, and there's, there's a, a really interesting book uh, that is probably the Bible for the fire movement uh, called Your Money or Your Life uh, that basically walks through the math. And I think most people don't even understand the math of what your, what your expenses, your regular expenses actually cost. Because in order to produce an income that will support your expenses, uh, you need in the estimates range of 25 to 33 times the every dollar that you that you spend. Yep. And so, in order to uh, support, uh, let's just use a simple example. Maybe I spend a uh, dollar a day on coffee rather than make my own coffee, mm-hmm. which is cheap. It's actually probably five dollars a day on coffee, but whatever. Uh, I, I need in order to produce that, that, that level of income in financial assets. Now that we're away from the defined benefit plans and we now have defined contribution plans and we're subject to the market returns, we need $125 to produce $5 a day. To, to produce one coffee a year. So if I want to spend $5 on, on a coffee, I need $125, if, if the number is 25 times, uh, I need $125 in assets at basically a 4% safe withdrawal rate, quote unquote, safe withdrawal rate. Yeah. And there's questions about whether that's even sufficient. So some people say you need as high as 33. But nonetheless, that's per day. So if I want a coffee every day, I need $5 times $365 times 25 to be able to produce that. So, so it really begs the question of, okay, if I'm really an asset allocator in my domestic investments like this, how am I going to, how am I going to allocate my capital? Well, it's, it'd be a hell of a lot cheaper to buy a coffee machine. You could spend you could spend a lot of money on a coffee machine, and and uh, the reward for uh, not having to accumulate that much cash over time uh, 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 would be very high, and would be very much worth my time to make a cup of coffee every day. But we also we part of the reason we suck at this is because we don't know specifically what it is we want. I'm going to use you as an example because this is one of the things I admire about. You. So we have gone way off the deep end here collectively. You and you and myself. You you are the leader in this. 
in terms of the camping and the outdoors uh, pursuits that we've had. So for those who don't know, Tim has an adventure rig, and then he also has his pickup truck now that has a rooftop tent with a road shower on it so that he can get <laughs> off the grid in a hurry. And of course, he completely won me over. Now I'm getting a rooftop tent and, and all of this. <laughs> but you got a guy like Tim, you know, if you wanted to go on vacation and you wanted to go stay at the Four Seasons or whatever, you could absolutely do that. You could absolutely <laughs> go do that. You could have people waiting on you with hot towels and, yes, sir, Mr. Barrett, right away, Mr. Barrett, anything you say, Mr. Barrett. You, you could have that whole bit going. But you took a step back and you said, what is it I want? Do I really want a, a vacation? Do I want people waiting on me? Do I, do I want that high-level service? Or do I want freedom? And for you, the, the answer, as you've said many times, is that you want freedom. And that led to, to the outdoor pursuit. And here's the, no matter how much you spend on your adventure rig, and your adventure rig is really kick-ass, but no matter how much you spend on that, it ain't, it's not going to come close to what, what you know, crazy vacations would cost otherwise. And you know, the cup of coffee example, the question is, do we want a cup of coffee or do we want some type of unbelievable taste. Now, you could make an argument that Starbucks coffee doesn't taste good anyway, and, and most, most coffee like that doesn't actually. But you know, what is it you're actually pursuing? Because my guess is the Keurig at home or the, you know, the, the regular Krupp's drip coffee maker, you're going to save a lot of money on. But there's not going to be a discernible difference in quality. If there is a difference in quality, then you pay for it because that's what you want. But we don't know what we want or where to start to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we buy, we buy so many things that are just totally disposable. It's ridiculous. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you buy the best quality item that you can when you're going to buy it. But, but, you know, to kind of, to your point, yeah, I, I, I realized that mostly I, I enjoy uh, adventures and travel and uh, exploration and, I also enjoy the solitude of, of nature and things of that sort. Um, don't get me wrong. I love staying at nice hotels and stuff like that. But um, I look at that and I say, would I rather be at a nice hotel or would I rather be able to uh, go camping indefinitely? Indefinitely is a strong word there, by the way. Yeah, that was the wrong word. But whenever <laughs> I want, whenever I want. Whenever I want. So, so let's let's use the same formula. Let's let's say, let's say, uh, and I'm going to use a calculator because I also went to ASU. Let's say that I'm going to spend two thousand dollars a week on a vacation. I'm that might even be on the short end, but depending where you go, but that's too either, cheap. Yeah, that's what should we use? Three thousand? Three thousand? Well, okay. Let's see. But you, you have six of you. And so here, so there's even more yeah, to this. Six. I have that, four kids. Yeah, and this is the other thing. We don't we don't capture all these costs. So you got four you got four kids. So you got six of you. And then let's also remember you now you have dogs. So the dogs have to go somewhere. I got two dogs. You yeah, got, you got right. they got to go to a dog sitter. There, there's mm -hmm. all of these costs buried in this. So let's let's all say right, it's a hundred so bucks for a dog sitter. Let's say it's two fifty a head for the flights, which is actually probably really cheap. But. And I know you don't fly Southwest um, because the Bar so, the Barretts all are, are tall people. Books are not, so every seat on, on Southwest is first class for us. Southwest Airlines. Yeah. Uh, 
anyway, they are the airline that survives. And and yes, if you're going to invest in an airline, you should invest in them. Okay, so so just hundred bucks for the dogs. You said two fifty per for the flight. We're at twenty two hundred dollars. How much how much does our accommodations cost for the week? Are you renting a house or staying in a hotel? Well, my family's so big, I got to rent a house. Yeah, so probably five hundred a night for, and it depends where you go. So. Okay, so so we're gonna go for a week. Uh, okay, and then let's just ignore the fact that we'd probably eat out on vacation because that's not really comparable. Oh no, no, that, that that's vacation, de- that's definitely a part of the equation. Uh, well, I guess I'm what I'm what I'm gonna get at is we don't go eat out when we're going camp. We just buy regular food. So so let's be frugal here. We're 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 gonna go. We're gonna fly somewhere. We're going to board the dogs. We're going to uh, stay at uh, a, a $500 a night house for my vacation. Maybe it's the beach or whatever. But we're going to eat in, right, just to make it comparable. This is a $5,700 vacation for one week, right? If I want to do that every year using our same formula and, and, and really being liberal on the 25 times that I need, in order to produce the assets to do that, I need $142,500. Basically, I added up all those expenses Chris said, and I said, I want to go do that, and I want to be able to do that every year for the rest of my life. I have to save $142,500. Or I could go camp in the forest, which I love. Or I could find a campground on a beach. I probably have to pay for that one, so that's not exactly fair. Uh, I, I've made these investments in my vacationing and there's not a chance in hell that I'd spend $142,000 or have to save that in order to go do that. So, so I've been joking with my wife for years that all my camping gear is an investment in the recession because the ongoing capital cost of supporting continued vacations of that type is basically zero. So once I've made the investment in the equipment, it's basically zero. Yeah. So I'm less than twenty grand into my bug out rig that I can hop in and just go. But you can also sell that. I, I can't. I can't sell a vacation I took four years ago that I don't want anymore. Despite what the timeshare people want you to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, these are. I mean, these are the things that I think about, and I call all this domestic investment. And I, I'm sure other people think of these things too, but. These are the things that I think about. Like, what is the lifestyle I want to create? I want to be able to explore. I want to be able to, to go out and enjoy nature. Um, you know, does that mean that I don't want to go stay at a hotel once a week or that I'm never going to stay at a hotel? No. Uh, you know, I, I probably want to do that too. But it just, when, when times are tight, I don't have to do that. I've got lots of camping equipment. We enjoy that. We've been enjoying that a lot, actually, along with the rest of America. Yeah, and it's been great for your kids to be outside too. You know, it's you know, with with where we live and and everything around us, you know, your your kids and my kids alike have the potential to live very, very coddled lives, lives that you and I probably didn't didn't grow up with. And you know, on one hand, we want to give our children all of the the best that that there is to offer, but it's possible, and I would submit this to parents everywhere, that when we say giving our children the best, 
doesn't mean giving them the nicest things. It means giving them the best perspectives. Right. Right. And we lose track of that yeah. because, because we want people to think we're successful. I, I want people to come over to my house and think, wow, Chris must be really smart. He must have had a really good job or he must have done, done really well. It, yeah, you know, it's, it's great if people like you, but you know what? I'm also not sure I want people to like me because they think I did well at work. I want them to like me because they think I care about them and I'm not a serial killer. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't even know if I should say this, but like, you know, we, we built a house a couple years ago and, and it's a nice place. And uh, I also like wine, uh, but I don't drink expensive wine, as you know. I like to go to like Total Wine or Safeway or Costco or whatever, and I take my Vivino app and I go around and snap pictures of yeah. of it to, to find. I like the, I want I want to find like a four star rating by normal people, not the not the weird point system, uh, you know, in the grape that I like, and I like to spend like fifteen dollars. But what's funny is is ever since um, you know we we've, we've got a nice house ever since we we built this house and. Um, it's funny people treat us differently. Even our close friends, they're like they'll hand me a glass of wine and they're like, "I'm sorry, this is a cheap one." And I'm like, "I don't know what kind of wine you think I drink, but <laughs> but this is this is ridiculous." I I I definitely get. And by the way, the thing with the wine, and I'm I, I'm a little different than you. Now I should say I love to thrill the hunt. For me, I love finding really good wines that are fourteen, fifteen bucks, but also, I also collect wine, which is, I don't know, maybe that's coming to an end. I think it's time to start drinking the wine. But um, actually, let me interrupt you there because there was this thing that I saw that showed the returns of various asset classes, the S&P 500, real estate, uh, uh, fine art, wine. Highest performing asset class over the last 10 years was wine. Yeah, that's because you tr- it's so tempting to drink it. Nobody's trying to eat no- nobody's, you know, trying to eat their artwork. You know, art can stay. That's <laughs> and, But the problem with wine is first of all, the problem with wine is fraud actually, even more than fine art. There is so much fraud in the fine wine space right now. And you, you can just, just read a little bit about that. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of it. Actually some great documentaries on it too. It's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you had just taken all the effort you put into this fraud and put it to some type of legitimate endeavor, you probably would have been just as successful. But you know, we anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry, I I don't even remember what I was talking about. But it's on the on the wine thing. It's like you know, I grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin. I don't I don't need a lot of these amazing things, and it's totally fine to enjoy them, and certainly don't begrudge anything that does, but. I think for all of us, we just need to figure out what it is that matters to us. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of, um, I forget who said it. There's this quote, um, actually two quotes. Uh, one was, uh, that's always stuck with me is happiness. Unhappiness is not knowing what you want and killing yourself to get it. That's the, I think that's what the majority of people are, are doing right now. Yeah, I mean, we're going through the motions blindly, and it's it's unfair, honestly, because the 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 marketing machines that have been built around 
keeping us consuming uh, rather than producing um, that tell us that having this thing or that thing or this house or that house or this car or that car, um, they work against us. They play off of known uh, triggers in our in our brains of wanting to be, you know, a part of um, a part of the crowd, a part of the group, you know, wanting to be included of, you know, wanting to, you know, be elite. They play off of those things. Yeah. They manipulate us. And I think if we don't know what we want, then we fall susceptible uh, to those things, especially as we're scrolling through our social media and, it's the worst. You know, you know, Instagram has the best advertisements. I mean, they've got my number. They really uh, do. And it's addictive. Um, it, it's addictive, as addictive as, as meth. <laughs> it's, right. And, and then we start telling ourselves lies. and But before, before you know it, we're totally swept up in this. We have no idea how the hell we got there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, if, I think we got to know what we want. And we got to know the true cost of the lifestyle that we're trying to create and um i think we also need to know ourselves and know our weakness points too i i think for right. a lot of us it's it's definitely ego you know like i said earlier like you, you want these people to believe certain things about you or you know think oh my gosh they're successful and it's you know was, i was watching one of those fire documentaries you're talking about and i think the guy there's a quote in there he said you know we're buying things we can't afford with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. Oh, that was the second quote I was going to recite. It's, yeah. It's spot on. I, yeah, 100%. It's, 100%. Yeah, it's it's a disaster. But speaking of capital allocation, you were talking about, um, I think it was a white paper, maybe a white correct me if I'm wrong, you were reading um just about effectively rebalancing portfolios. And it was it was really, really interesting. We've we have a very uh common theme in in this uh this show about capital allocation because that's that's what this one's uh, about as well. By the way, um, life is capital allocation. Okay. You know, because you know what you know what our most valuable form of capital is? Our time. Because that's that's the one that's the one asset class, <laughs> the one type of capital that we can never make any more of. And so just as we have to allocate our dollars, we have to allocate our time. So, yeah, so this one's this one is uh, consistent with that as well. It, uh, it's an article. It's called The Single Greatest Predictor of Future Stock Market Returns. And you and I have been having this discussion a lot. We've talked a little bit about it uh, together on the show about um, two things, really. One, I'll, I'll just go real quick. We've been confused about how oil went to zero uh, last month and this month. You know, we're like over $30 this month. But there's nowhere and, to uh, put it. I don't understand. Well, so the interesting thing, uh, there was a guy I read that has a thesis and he's looked at uh, spot rates for storage and and his thesis basically is is that the shipping containers that were bringing things over, yeah, uh, last month were full because this all came on so fast, and so storage capacity was limited. But now those shipping containers are just sitting, and so the spot rates for storage have actually dropped. So, 
so there's more storage available. Uh, so that actually made sense. It, it does, be- but but it's just at some point because we're still not. Well, I guess we are driving a lot more now. So we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that stat that you had too. shows we definitely are. Yeah, there's there was a there was a, an investment a virtual investment conference that uh, that I've been watching uh, the last the last week and a half or so, and uh, they they actually showed that you know since we can't go on cruises since we can't not can't but are are not really flying uh, we're not traveling internationally that everybody is road tripping and so they're actually expecting that people will will blow through quite a bit of this backlog of oil by, you know, by the way pub- a quick public service announcement um, and this of course is not self-serving at all given given the business that Tim and I are in uh, washing cars but it has been suggested by certain uh, publications or research institutions of note that a clean car performs 12% better. So I just want to let you guys know if you're taking these summer road trips because you can't fly, you might want to swing into a raceway car wash or a clean machine car wash or a Sierra car wash and uh, or a clean getaway. And, That's right. You know, I'm you know, maybe you want to wash your car, not just because it'll look good and you'll feel good, but you know, you're doing a good job of not only allocating but properly protecting your capital by saving that twelve percent in fuel. The more you know. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, and 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 despite popular belief, we did not pay MythBusters to produce that article. <laughs> they produced it all on their own. It was really, but we just, but we are uh, very selfishly communicating that to everybody uh, right now. Uh, I didn't believe it was true, but apparently it is. Um, Anyway, I forgot where it was. Oh, that uh, that article. Okay, so so the other thing, so that was oil. The other thing that we've been confused by is how expensive the market seems right now. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, at twenty-seven times, uh, you know, uh, the cape ratio, uh, which which is a you know a measure of uh, you know or a full ten-year um, uh, business cycle uh, average uh, PE ratio, uh, average over time has been fifteen. We're at like 27 right now. We might be over that today. Yeah, Schiller's 27.71 right now. Yeah, so it's really high. And so, uh, you know, Chris and I generally lean toward the uh, fundamental value investing, uh, although I do more real estate investing. Um, Says the guy uh, that called me the other day and said, stop what you're doing and go buy Bitcoin. That's right. I do like Bitcoin. It's an option. It's an option on the future with asymmetric risk, but it's a gamble. That's exactly what it is. Uh, anyway, so, um, okay. So this article, this article that I read, uh, uh, super interesting, single greatest predictor of future stock market returns. And the gist of it is that capital allocation over time, uh, uh, is, is more of a driver of, of, uh, and, 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 uh, estimate of where values should be, uh, than not. And he basically divides things into cash bonds stocks and i'm really good at overly simplifying things and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to use this example let's say historically the uh, uh valuation you know cape ratio is 15 but i'm gonna use 10 for simple math numbers is 10 and i've got a 300 dollars portfolio which means and i'm going to put a third of it in stocks a third of it in bonds and a third of it in cash okay this is my capital allocation and it's desirable for everybody. Everybody wants the same capital allocation. Just assume that. So I'm going to put $100 in stocks. My uh, valuation on that is 10. 
which means the $100 that I invest, uh, it's got an earnings yield of $10, right? And I'm going to put $100 in bonds. And this might get confusing, uh, but I'm trying to use simple numbers. It also has a 10% yield. Uh, so that $100 that I'm going to put in bond, bonds, it has an interest rate that's going to pay me $10 a year. And then I have $100 in cash, and uh, we don't we don't need to, uh, since cash doesn't earn anything anymore, we'll just ignore the fact that cash should have a return if you invest in a bank, but it doesn't. Um, so it's zero. Now, the market goes on a run. The stock market goes on a run, right? It just goes on a tear. That $100 that I invested in the stocks is now worth $200, okay? But the earnings yield didn't change. It's still $10. So it's now valued at 20 times earnings. A proper portfolio allocation that says, I want a third in stocks, a third in bonds, and a third in cash would say that I need to sell half of my stock, uh, not quite a half. I need to sell uh, $66 of uh, my stock. So now I have 133 in stock and I need to put another 33 in my bond portfolio and I need to put another 33 in my cash position. So now I got 133 in stock I got 133 in bonds and I got 133 in, in cash. I just reallocated that portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my desired allocation. But that would mean that the stock market valuation, if everybody did that, everybody wants this desired portfolio of a third, a third, a third that I'm just making up. Then that would mean that the, the, the valuation is not going to follow the long-term average of 10 in stocks, it's actually going to be 13.3 in stocks. It hmm. changes the valuation from, from and, and the only way for the valuation for, if everybody did that same thing, the only way for uh, uh, that to work is to under allocate to stocks, which would make me over allocate to bonds. I'd have to sell $100 worth of stock to only have to stay at 10 in value in the stock market. That means I either have to overallocate to cash or I have to overallocate to bonds because it has to go somewhere. It's a very fascinating article. So he, he goes through, I just oversimplified the entire thing, but he goes through very academically. Uh, and I found it really intriguing uh, that the only way for to get to the long-term average in that scenario is to under allocate to stocks and over allocate to bonds and cash. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. It, it, it does. And the thing that I, I started thinking through in my head is a conversation we had either late last week, or early this week about the shift to passive and index or ETF investing and the reduction on volatility as a result. And I'm thinking about, about my my dear friend Charlie Munger, who is famous for talking about how every trade has to effectively have two sides and more likely a winner and a loser, meaning someone's getting a good deal on that trade and somebody's not. But if you start to to see more people move to this passive type of investing, yeah, it's it's going to be great because um, there, there's certainly less volatility. 
But at some point, it's also going to limit the returns of those on the winning side of the trade, so to speak, because you're not going to see people selling when they shouldn't sell or you know buying when they shouldn't buy. Um, it's it's going to make uniforms or excuse me more uniform returns from one person to the next rather than having somebody that's really good at buying value stocks and somebody that's an an impulsive speculator that is selling at the wrong time. Right. Right. So it does beg the question, you know, of all these of all these conversations we have about the market and you know I've got got my list of probably 30 or 40 stocks that I watch and you know, like every day I get a list of the um the S&P 500 companies that have gone to a 52 week low in the last month and I look at them and figure out what the long term potential is that's probably going to start to go away uh and the advantage in the market that people that were true value investors and patient investors had is going to probably be eradicated over time so the guys that invest like Buffett and Munger are probably not going to have the same success simply because everybody else is starting to think that way yeah yeah, that's right. That's right. And if if you if you did we already talk about this? If you assume, I'd heard recently that like ninety percent of the capital is currently going into passive investment strategies, not active fundamental investment strategies. Which which means that the fundamental uh, investor is going to underperform. Uh, is going to underperform the the market because it it's really just passive investors buy the market broadly, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over time, like they kind of the fu- the fundamental investors sort of act as I think the gatekeepers for how those investments should be made across the stock portfolio. If, if, if no one, if no one is paying attention to the valuations, then those valuations can get distorted over time by these passive investments that are ninety percent of the capital. Interesting. And the fundamental investors will sit out of the market for for a super really long time. Which is actually consistent with what, you know, uh, your friend, as you like to call him, Buffet and Mr. Buffet. Uh, and and Munger, um, uh, uh, that what they do. I mean, they accumulate massive amounts of cash. Well, they're selling off positions uh, now. They they're building a war chest to do something big right now. I'm not sure what it is, but they they sold off some stuff uh, late last week, and she's I think they're sitting on like 130 billion dollars of cash. Especially considering you have two guys that have railed against the impacts of a, of inflation um, and, and why holding cash is so problematic. I got to imagine there's a play coming here at some point. Yeah, well, ca- cash has like an implicit return because it's an option on future opportunity. And it's it's easy to underallocate to cash because... You know, you're not getting a return on your investment, and you're afraid. Of, you're afraid of inflation. Um, but when when the market goes on sale, you know, you want to have cash, and if you don't have cash, exactly. you can't take advantage of those opportunities. 
Yeah. It's nice. Um, nice, but nonetheless, nice to have a few I, I bullets. Thought because, because we've spoken so much about, about not, not understanding, uh, you know, how the market keeps marching higher, uh, despite the fact that it really seems overvalued that, and I still think it's overvalued. Um, in fact, I, I have thought for a while that, um, that, uh, you know, right now our, our 200, 200 day moving average, um, we're, we're bumping up the bottom of it right now. It's right around 3000 on the S and P, uh, and the 200 day moving average is moving down, which from a technical perspective, which I know you, you, uh, uh, think is reading the tea leaves, which I also think is reading the tea leaves. Uh, anyway, is, I think there's a higher probability that we bounce down than that we, than that we, you know, cross over and hit a new high, um, just being in a bear market. Um, uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, proper portfolio allocation requires that even though these assets are overvalued, that you're holding a balanced portfolio. Um, uh, now, I would I would prefer that that those allocations uh, be in assets that are fundamentally valued appropriately, uh, not any and not inappropriately. Um, uh, nonetheless, uh, I thought it was a good explanation why the market can sustain long periods of time of being overvalued, and it's because of that allocation. Otherwise, we'd have to overallocate to cash or bonds. I'm just, I never advocate for um, investing based on charts. It's probably the worst thing you can do. Yet they're fun pictures, and they're fun to look at, and try to try to pretend that they're predictive of the future and if you're just looking at at charting right now, it's very interesting how we're effectively following with with the COVID crash, as maybe we want to call it, the the mid '70s decline into the recession, and we're effectively climbing out of this at the rate that um, that, that we really saw in the '80s. So it's it's interesting to see. Um, when we get a lot of these valuations that don't make sense and then you bump it up against what we saw that was just stupid going into the 2000s with with the money we saw thrown around for dot com businesses that doesn't make make sense you know it leads me to believe that your point about valuations not making sense and being headed for a prolonged recession is is being accurate but it also tells me that there are tremendous values to purchase in there and it's funny. I'm reading. Um, I'm rereading right now something that I'm, I'm always reading: The Intelligent Investor, and that's probably the greatest investment book ever written. Uh, Mr. Buffet seems to think so. But they, um, in, in the commentary on that, uh, I forget his name. What is it? Actually, I got... Jason. Jason Zweig. Yeah, he's a columnist for for the Wall Street Journal. Um, he does a lot of kind of side by side this stock versus this stock uh, examples in the in the, the commentary, and he does a lot of stuff on the dot com crash in the early two thousands. And it's amazing to see the types of um, of deals that there were to be had as you know as, as the market was was on fire with you know with with the sexy stocks, but then you had these these boring stocks that were just great values and good long term plays and you know, if we do end up continuing the, this rally, as we'll call it, despite all evidence to why we shouldn't, I imagine there are still going to be some great stocks to buy 
And there are some of these sexy names that are going to get a little too inflated. Now, Amazon is a stock I love. It's making me a little bit nervous because at some point, it's like, okay, we've, we're probably trading this just a little bit too, too expensively. But you know, there have to be some stocks in here that have been hit by COVID that, that might have some good long-term plays or be really cheap. You know, like right now, when, when I look at my 52-week low list, you've got Southwest Airlines on. They're bouncing against a, a low. They're a company that that I, I trust. You know, airlines are an entirely different entity, but Southwest does things their own way, and that's when I look at it and I think, well, okay, may, may, maybe it's worth taking a flyer. It's not like we're going to see a couple bad quarters and suddenly, suddenly they're going to be shocked that that COVID hit them. I think that's got to be priced in. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe it's worth allocating some capital here. It's it's not going to go down, but I'm going to have that asymmetric return if it really comes back. Right. Yeah, I like gambling a little bit too. <laughs> you know, you're taking a dig at me when you say that. <laughs> oh, you know, I hate gambling. <laughs> oh, and I'm teasing. Uh, most of you know, it's funny. I, 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 um, I really divide uh, things into kind of three different categories for the way the way I invest things. The vast majority of what I invest in is real estate, private companies. Uh, you know, if you, if, uh, if you looked at my net worth, like it would be 75% of, of what I do. Um, so there lots of exposure to the upside, everything else markets. I'm, I constantly think the world's going to collapse and that, uh, that, uh, markets are rigged and all sorts of stuff. Um, but anyways, so then, then I keep like the portion of my portfolio that I think of like my regular retirement portfolio, you know, where I need to have 25 to 33 times my, my income, uh, my expenses that I want to spend, uh, in, in retirement. And that's if all hell breaks loose, uh, and everything I'm doing on the private investment side, uh, drops. And then I've got an extremely small portion of my portfolio that I like to gamble with. Um, and one of the topics that we talked about uh, uh, is uh, talked about bringing up uh, you know, on this conversation was uh, our worst investments. And I thought I thought I thought I ought to I thought I ought to admit that I love losing money trading currencies. I love it. Oh my gosh, I love it. I wish I would have. I wish I would have known that before you, before I took your advice and and bought Bitcoin. Now, granted, I bought Bitcoin purely for amusement. Yes. Well, that one's going to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm told. I love gambling with that stuff. It's so. I just. I. It. It makes things engaging. Um. You know. So I'm. I'm like short a whole bunch of stuff right now. It's. It's hysterical. Very long the U.S. dollar. So. You know, short the Hong Kong dollar as much as I can. It's a very little uh, amount of money, but I'm short uh, the Canadian dollar, short the Australian dollar. Uh, I'm short the euro. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, so I still gamble with that kind of stuff. But as far as the worst investments I've made, speaking of technical investing, I was trading, I was scalping currencies once. And and this was great. I I, I took a thousand dollars, and this is this is like when a thousand dollars was was not nothing, you know. But but it was it was a thousand dollars. I took a thousand dollars, and I start 
I start trading with this. And I'm just trying to buy something that I think is going to go up a little bit and I'd sell it. And then I find another position to come in, it'd go up a little bit and I'd sell it. But I'm using heavy leverage. Like you can use ridiculous amounts of leverage trading currencies, uh, really trading futures as if you're trading. And um, uh, I, I took $1,000 and I turned it into $10,000 in a month. Thought you're the smartest guy in the world. I'm like, I'm going to build something out of this. Like this, I'm going to be a currency trader. This is so great. <laughs> The very next month, I had zero. <laughs> that was my worst investment. I uh, I have one experience with a true professional currency trader, uh -huh. and it was I, I was living in Chicago, and I would go to the same gym and I'd sit in the same sauna every day at the same time, and I got to know this guy that was always there, and he was a currency trader, and he would come in every single day. He'd sit in the sauna. Put it on and go, oh, I hate my life. Every <laughs> single day. <laughs> you know, there's no days off. Um, there's, there's a couple, but that's when you're doing research. So currencies, for those that don't know, they trade 24 hours a day, five days a week. Um, so, you know, you can, you can be in a position. I mean, there were times during that period, and this is just a two-month period where I was like up all night because I'm using such heavy leverage that if it goes against me, like I got to get out quick or get wiped out. And, and uh, it's just ridiculous. And I had this, I had a, I had a foolproof strategy. You know what it was? This ought to be good. <laughs> I would buy in, I would buy in and every 1% that it would go against me. No problem. I just double down. <laughs> right. So I'd buy in a position and I'd double down and then it'd go against me. And I'd double down again. So I doubled my double. And it would go against me. And I'd double my double. And it would go against me. And then I'd double my double and it would go up and I'd sell it really quick as soon as it as soon as it turned profitable. And it was a foolproof plan. I I made I turned a thousand dollars into ten thousand dollars in a month. And then the next month that I did that, of course, I got into one trade where I doubled down and I doubled down and I doubled down and I doubled down. And then I ran out of margin and it wiped me out. It was so great. You're the guy at the blackjack table. You know, he's showing he, he's showing a king or whatever. He's got 14. He's like, hit me. Gets another king. Bust. He's like, hit me again. <laughs> like, sir, sir, <laughs> sir, you busted. Hit me. <laughs> I'll pay you more. Oh, yeah. Just hit me. Yeah. So that was great. So that's what I'm, I much prefer. I, um, uh, you know, I'm constantly in search for, for ways to stay liquid, uh, you know, because private investments in real estate is, is not totally, uh, totally liquid. And, um, uh, but I prefer, you know, real estate assets where, you know, I've got some plan to improve it in some way. So it kind of acts as a little bit of a hedge. Also, action is, is the antidote to anxiety. You know, it's it's right. great to be a value investor in the stock market, but you can't do anything to influence it. At least with real estate, right. you, you can do something. Yeah, yeah, you can you can do something to it. Um, but you know, when the market goes against you, it's uh, it can be ugly as well. What's but the, yeah, that's why I, that's why I like real estate. Is there that's a best like investment? My best investment. Um. I've had some, I've had some good ones. Most of them, most of them have been, 
um, most of them have been real estate related, some sort where I bought something and, you know, usually what I'm doing is I'm buying, buying a building, renovating it in some way, increasing the rents and then lease it up or sell it. I think the best performing, I think I made the most on a, on a little 44 unit building that I bought up in Flagstaff. Um, we had a good, good plan for it. We thought we were buying yield and, uh, you know, the market just went crazy. So, um, yeah, we did very well uh, with that one. Well, timing helps. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's great. All right. Good talk this week. Yeah, great talk. Yeah. We'll be back with you guys next week with uh, more thrilling tangents. <laughs> yes. More <laughs> pontifications. Uh, and ho- hopefully a little bit better Bitcoin because... Uh, uh, as Tim said, hey, uh, you got you got a hodl. I'm like, hodl? What the? Hot, what, what, what? Or is hodl. it hodl? Hodl? Hold what, what, hodl. 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 Buy and hodl. Yeah, Bitcoiners say buy and hodl. Yeah. I'm like, what? Hold on for dear life. Yeah, which is apparently where we're doing. By, by the way, live check. So I bought Bitcoin at uh, 96.70. Uh, Tim told me it was going to go to, uh, what, what, did, what did you say? 240,000? Oh, it's going to the moon. Yeah, well, right now it's at eighty nine sixty six. It's down five hundred and forty two for the day. So, hey, you, you know what my you know what my my strategy on that is? Just double down. <laughs> just, just double just down. Buy. <laughs> well, to be fair, okay, we're laughing about your double down, but r- really, there are plenty of sophisticated hedge funders uh, that that continue to buy into the declines as well. But I'm not sure buying into the decline gets people as much as they want to uh, pretend it does. Yeah, that's actually an investment strategy to buy the dips. Yeah, uh, there's over. It was I was just listening to to something, and we were ending ending the show, but apparently we're not. I was just listening to something recently, an interview, I think it was, and they were talking about the, the past performance over the last thirty years of buy the dip, like has added like ten percent extra to the returns. But then this person ran the analysis uh, historically over a ninety year period, and it's like a loser. It's like a losing play. So there's a lot of there's a, I think there's a lot of folks that are getting get shaken shaken out of, uh, of that trade. I'd rather buy the bottom than buy the dip. But the other part of it though is calling bottoms is so hard. And, and this is why. Actually, going back to the previous point about best and worst investments, this is why I hope equity wise, I never have any like best investment that really sticks out. Just in the sense that the best investments are kind of the boring ones to me. The ones that just sort of stand the test of time, because to capture the returns of the market, you typically have to be invested on on the biggest biggest trading days, the biggest positive days. However, they're generally very close to the biggest losing days, and so it's it's kind of like you can't throw crap at a wall and expect to hit these. And there's so much more that impacts the market beyond just logic and rational thought. So, to me, it's kind of like all right, buy good companies and have them stay on the test of time. So hopefully there's no great investments. That, well, hopefully they're great investments, but nothing that like sticks out now. Bitcoin, you know, w- when it goes to the moon, as you say, I'm going to be forever grateful and that'll hopefully stick out. But, you know. Hey, uh, in my defense, I told you, you need to put so much in to where if it goes to zero, you can laugh. But if it goes to the moon, it's meaningful. Which is pretty much what I did. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it's... 
it's it's an I, I put in enough that I'm excited if it goes crazy, but if it doesn't, I'm gonna be like, well, at least I have something to hold over Tim for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> Pretty much, that's what I think. All right. Well, for hope some it- people that's ten bucks. For some people that's a hundred bucks. For some people that's a thousand bucks. You know. Well, it's going to the moon. It doesn't matter. It can't lose. That's right. That's right. It just happened. You don't even understand. You got to do it. <laughs> Get in now. Uh, is this when we're supposed to have one of those disclaimers that says, this is not professional Probably. investment advice. Do not do whatever the hell they tell you to do. You're on your own. <laughs> yeah, good plan. There we go. Uh, should we bounce this off, Matt Mason? It's for entertainment purpose, entertainment purposes only. It's <laughs> exactly what this is. This is pure speculation <laughs> and purely for your entertainment purposes. We are not wealth managers. We are not wealth advisors. We uh, we are two guys that just struggled with uh, live mathematics on their podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you guys next week. All right, see you guys. <laughs>